AVXL episode 176 was recorded on April 8, 2022. Rob got eyes on an 85-inch Samsung TV. Let's talk about getting your Atmos on and why even mediocre subs can make a big difference. Automatic Odyssey calibration or buy an SPL meter, some love for Gravity Falls, and so much more. Don't forget to email ask at avxl.com if you got a question for us. And thank you. Thank you. No, seriously, thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly contributions make this show possible. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welcome to AVXL, your guide to the best in video and home audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton, and I promise not to talk about headphones today or your butts. Okay. Hey, I am Robert Heron. <laughs> Happy Friday. <laughs> There's just not much to talk about this week. Happy Friday. Oh, my goodness. You did a calibration on a 2021 Samsung QN90A 4K television. And how, sir, are you feeling about a great big Samsung Man, I don't want to say LED, LCD, or, or QLED until I know which one it is, so I'm just going to stop speaking. It's a QLED. And let you talk about it. It's QLED. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know off the top of my head. AKA Quantum Dot Enhanced LED Backlit 4K LCD Television. And this was Samsung's premium 2021 4K TV. I had a chance to check out the 85-inch version of this. Currently available for about 2900 bucks online. And if you're interested, I think there are Gosh. a few of the 98-inch versions of this TV still in existence, but those are a cool 15 grand. And if you're looking at the 2022 model, that's the QN90B, that is still currently $5,000 if you want the latest and greatest. Now, when it comes to that QN90A from 2021, that thing tuned up quite nicely. It produced one of the best HDR responses I've ever measured Post-calibration, it was spitting out about 1,500 nits. That's at a 10% window pattern size. This was a wall-mounted setup. And for right. an 85-inch screen, that is a really nice option when projection or even an OLED isn't going to be ideal for a particular room environment. It's bright. The bright rooms. <laughs> Any room with a lot of light in it needs a bright TV to help combat that. And having 1,500 nits of calibrated performance, in addition to just being a very bright TV, this also had Samsung's terrific anti-reflective coating and that wide-angle filter technology that helps spread the viewing sweet spot out a little bit compared to your traditional LCD televisions. If I had any one wish for this particular TV or Samsung's in general, would be to have something like lookup table color programming for SDR and HDR, the way... LG offers it with their premium TVs and projectors. In a couple weeks, I should be getting some hands-on time with the 8K version of the 2021 TV, the QN900A, and I will be sure to report on that when I get back. But overall, I think for that current price right now at about $2,900 for a premium 85-inch screen, that is a pretty good deal. And it sounds like it. A couple grand less than what it would be if you have to have the 2022 version right now. So keep that in mind. I, I think it's going to be great for gamers, people who want a more of a, a true big screen experience, but really can't swing mm -hmm. the projector or OLED or a room that's just too damn bright to deal with. And you need a light cannon. This was a good option. I'm really pleased with how that turned out and how it looked and how it performed. Good TV overall. So you're in a magic room, and you have both of these TVs side by side. If there's a wall of glass and you're in Miami, obviously the, the LED panel is going to be advantageous over the OLED because of the light output, because it's not going to be blown away by the sunshine. It has um, a chance. As, as the room gets dimmer, you know... When you're sitting, at, when you're looking at these side by side, other than the OLED at 85 inches is going to be considerably more expensive than this Q90A. Um, at what point do you start noticing? I, I would say it would probably be the the inky blacks would be the thing that would would stand out the most in a side by side comparison. Anything else that would that would uh, differentiate between that once the lights dim between the QLED and the uh, OLED? If you're sitting in the sweet spot 
front and center, this mm-hmm. QN90A is going to look fantastic. It's going to deliver superb black levels. Where I see challenges for LCD technology in general is when you're dealing with things like subtitles or very bright scenes that are letterboxed, where you're trying to preserve the black bars of a letterbox mm-hmm. or in the worst case scenario, when you have, say, a bright white piece of text pop up at the bottom of the screen for your closed captioning or for your subtitles or whatever, that's where it really challenges the local dimming performance of the TV itself. And it's where it honestly Mm -hmm. is probably easiest to see a halo effect around something like that in a very dark scene. That's something that OLEDs can do perfectly. (laughs) If you are dealing with any kind of room light challenge in terms of uh, I have a bright room an LCD TV like the QN90A is just going to have significantly more light output to help with that nice at some point we should actually sit down and start figuring out some measuring tools do I have a bright room we have assembled a collection of tools for you to measure the average ambient light in your room to make a determination Actually, that'd be a fun project in some weird ways. It also goes um, back to regardless of what kind of TV you have, I would not want a open window right behind me that's reflecting off of any TV screen. I don't yeah. care how good the anti-reflective is. That would just be a, an annoyance. And sometimes you don't have a choice in terms of where the TV <laughs> can go. But if you do, yeah, keep it out of the sunlight. Keep it out of being a reflective surface for any particular room right. lights, especially in the prime viewing position. That's just, uh, sometimes you have options, sometimes you don't. <laughs> and never forget, blackout curtains can be your best friends. But I know that's Actually, a, they really can. That's a, tw- yeah, you ain't kidding. Those things are affordable and effective if you can swing it. <laughs> if that light blocking technology will work for you. I know it's a 2021 TV, but uh, one other thing this kind of showed me as well is that By this time about next year, you're going to see about a $2,000 price reduction on the current $5,000 price tag for the 2022 model. Right. That's uh, nice to see. But if you have to have it today and you need the 2022, it is out there and available. And getting good reviews, too. It seems very comparable to the 2021 model, and it is not a step back in any way. I still would like to see something like Dolby Vision supported on Samsung TVs, but with the way AI is now with picture processing, Samsung does a pretty good job with any kind of content you're going to throw at it, be it your HDR10 or HDR10 Plus or whatever. They're doing a lot of stuff on the back end to give you a very similar performance. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-mm. Interesting uh, update for the Xbox Series X, Series 10, Series X. Uh, Eden Marie, a.k.a. Neon Epiphany on Twitter. Uh, she's the engineering lead at Xbox. She tweeted uh, earlier this week, Hey, Xbox, all Series X and S consoles get a feature starting today that will switch your TV's input back to your console when you press the Xbox button on your controller. You need to have HDMI CEC turned on and a setup that supports it, but no more digging for that remote. I'm like, that's cool. And a couple of friends of mine reacted to that with savage joy. We live in a no-console household, um, so I cannot experience this. I just remember thinking it's really nice when the developers add a useful feature. Um, <laughs> this seems overdue. This is a pretty common feature yeah. on most of your streaming products. Uh, like my Roku Ultra, for example, if I hit the power button on that, it will turn on the TV and go to that input. And that is through HDMI CEC functionality. But that is odd that they took so long to actually bring that to a game console. But um, hey, it apparently is just a software update and a quick toggle of the option within the menu and you're good to go. Yeah, that's cool. They also added some, I thought, some nice uh, audio options in, in part because they are things, for example, that I have shut off on almost every device I own, uh, like all of the, I, I won't say every device. There are some cases where I actually enjoy the audio cues that go along with scrolling through a menu on a streaming box. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, the option to turn those off is very enjoyable, too. They call them, uh, or I should say, muting the system sound effects. I want to say example. I'm similar in the sense that that was one of the first things I do on my current TV, at least, is if I ever reset it, is to immediately go back in and find that 
that audible <laughs> cue and turn it from I think it's on high or medium and I turn it down to low at the very least. I still like to hear it, yes. but I don't need a major ding every time I touch a button on a yeah. remote. <laughs> that gets a little annoying, especially for listening bit. through headphones. Because I've, I've been doing a bunch of uh, listening in the evenings. And as much as I enjoy my surround sound system, you know, if people are trying to go to sleep, I can't really watch anything with any volume. And I will I will be honest, for as much anime as I've watched subtitled, it's just not the same as actually being able to, you know, reading subtitles is distracting from, you know, listening and watching the movie is kind of, you know, two separate orifices in your skull. Are eyeballs orifices? No, yeah. I guess they aren't. Uh, <laughs> I realize that I have a similar thing with uh, subtitles enabled. Sometimes on Netflix, yeah. I just want those. I want the dialogue written on the screen in addition yeah. to actually watching the content. But I realize it is a significant distraction. It pulls yeah. me out of it. I almost feel like I have to hear every word for some reason. And yeah. I have to actually see it in front of me. But I realize that that takes your attention in two different spots from either the, the visual presentation or, uh, yeah. I can remember watching certain animes three or four times, especially because there, there was just so much going on visually. And once I kind of had, after the second or third time, I had mentally the what the dialogue meant in my head, and I could sort of think about that while the other things. I I also, at one point, was had this very purist thing going on where I really wanted to hear the actual Japanese uh, voice actors and not the American voice actors. And then I realized, you know, there's, it's okay. You don't speak Japanese. You're never going to speak Japanese, you know, just at, at least not fast enough to, <laughs> to process this stuff. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is an example of that, where there is a title I would never watch with any kind of language dubbing. I want to hear it right. as originally presented with the subtitles and having that integrated experience. If maybe it's the color of the subtitles, maybe it's the font they chose, but it know. doesn't seem as distracting as some of the other subtitle options I've had at least in terms of like my Netflix viewing or other things, but <laughs> that is one movie where there's also a lot of visuals without dialogue as well. So, right. What subtitles do appear aren't as distracting. You're really focused on the on the picture on That's the screen. That's still I mean, it's still a visually stunning movie. Oh, um, still fantastic. Yeah. Gets me in the feels every time I watch it. If you have thoughts on subtitles or listening to movies while the rest of your family is asleep, email us, askanavxl.com. I, I will just flat out say, you know, Bluetooth headphones connected to my Apple TV is incredibly useful. Um, you know, is, is it the full experience? No. Uh, but it is... A gigantic chunk of the experience, um, and uh, I don't get yelled at for annoying my family members, or worse yet, waking them up. Bluetooth compatibility being as universal as it is, and how easy oh. it is to connect a device, doesn't matter if you're Android or iOS, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's I just, very nice. Uh, I wish everything had it, and everything doesn't. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I know what you're talking of, and I will not. <laughs> I will not engage you on this subject. It's all good. Speaking of which, Jay, let's talk about Jay. Jay emailed Ask at AVXL. I am new to receivers and just got my first Denon receiver last October. Congratulations, Jay. I know it has Odyssey built into it to run for calibration. Should I buy a DB slash SPL meter to make sure the levels are all the same? So SPL meter, sound pressure level meter, uh, it basically measures the audio in decibels. You know, and I, I laugh because my, uh, immediately my thoughts are like, no, yes, maybe. Um, look, both Rob and I think that Odyssey is pretty amazing. It helps a lot to get the mic on a stand uh, so that it, it is sitting at ear level uh, you know, in the seat, or if you're doing a really serious Odyssey calibration and doing all the things, the multiple seat locations, because that's one of the things that as, as Odyssey gets more sophisticated, you can kind of take more and more microphone measurements to try to make the sweet spot as large as possible. And that said, a lot of pro audio people I know, especially of a certain age, they prefer to sit in place with a with an SPL meter, a sound pressure level meter. Uh, I am on the fence as to whether this is tradition or actually valuable for any speaker other than the subwoofer. I mention that because subwoofers often tend to be set lower than you want in Odyssey. Um, you know, 
SPL meters are not expensive uh, and they're kind of a great learning tool. And they're also really fascinating. Just having an SPL meter on your phone is an interesting experience. It's a little, I think, more reliable for iOS devices than Android devices because the iOS microphones are kind of a better known entity because there's exactly. a, a finite number of microphones that have gone into a on into the uh, uh, Apple uh, phone designs. That said, there's a reason, for example, that Sonos does calibration only using iPhones because they know what microphones, generally speaking, are, are used based on the phone it's running on. And there are too many Android devices out there with too many microphone options for it to be as reliable a tool, dot, dot, dot. That said, it's really cool to be able to turn on your you know, an app on your phone and get an idea of how loud the environment you're is. It's fascinating. Do it on a plane, do it in a subway, do it in a movie theater. The spec ref for Dolby is like 105 dB peaking at, you know, numbers that will absolutely terrify you. The reference numbers. I always laugh because I adored being able to see movies in Dolby's uh, reference theater at their shop, at their you know, at their headquarters in San Francisco, but I always had to use earplugs because it was painfully loud for me. I am totally I do not enjoy large volumes, but you know, that was also part of the cinematic experience in there. In any case, um, there's a lot of technique involved with either way you do yeah. this. So if you're going to use the Odyssey mic, like you mentioned, always use it with something like a relatively inexpensive tripod. So you can get the position yeah. consistent and where it should be in terms of having that mic pointed straight up, approximately located in the center of where your head would yeah. be, and to be, uh, again, consistent. And the same thing would go with a dB meter. You need to supply the test tones from some source. It can be a PC right. or a disc or whatever. But then you need to be careful about in terms of how you hold it and how it's pointed and how it's configured. Yeah. And it could be done either way. But if, in the end, if you if have you Odyssey already... I would just make yeah. sure you're using an appropriate tripod just to put that thing right in the spot. You don't want to be setting your microphone on top of a pillow cushion or something or in some right. scenario where it's not really consistent with how it's actually going to be, how you sit in the room or how you are going to be listening in the room. It's yeah, it works pretty or well. Or where your ears are going to be in the room, right? Correct. Um, yeah. You want to do something really weird, run an Odyssey calibration with the microphone tipped over so that the microphone is basically on the couch cushion. Um, this will not be, <laughs> this will not be a normal tuning, uh, but Odyssey will endeavor mightily to correct for that and, and in ways that will be really bizarre. But, you know, get a cheap mic stand or get a cheap something, uh, you know, anything with like three legs that you can sit to get the microphone position to where your ear level would normally be, um, you know, go to Goodwill, you know, check Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, uh, something cheap off uh, Amazon, because it, it makes a difference. Or, you know, hack something together out of coders and duct tape. Um, There's some DIY there that could be done. It's just a matter of being simply consistent about it and making yeah. sure at least it's as properly configured and set up as you can do before you go through and run a calibration on either either method be it using yeah. Odyssey or your own personal tweaking using a dB meter. <laughs> yeah, and, and dB meters, SPL meters, they're not expensive. They get really expensive if you want to measure, you know, if you want really accurate measurements or certified measurements, or if you want to measure like below 35, 40 hertz, they get really spendy. That said, get a C-weighted one or one that does C and Z-weighted measurements. If you want to know why, email ask at abxl.com and we'll discuss the weighting on uh, uh, SPL measurement tools and experiment with it. If you find that interesting, uh, kind of the next evolution on this is to go crazy with uh, REW or Room EQ Wizard, which is software that runs on your laptop or desktop and a calibrated mic. You can get pretty feral with this stuff if you want to, but seriously, start with Odyssey and then experiment if you want to nerd out or if you, you think there are flaws in the way Odyssey has set up your system. Excellent. We got a great email from Martin. He's got some interesting challenges. Uh, he wants to add additional speakers to his home theater. He's got some subwoofer issues. And like a lot of us, he has some really interesting challenges in the room that all of this is installed in. Uh, at least interesting if you don't have an infinite amount of money and incredibly uh, 
<laughs> an incredibly uh, patient spouse while you spend the infinite amounts of money making uh, a house into something it wasn't originally. Um, Martin says, hi guys, hope you're doing well. I love your show and I've been a $5 Patreon subscriber for almost a year. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. I download the podcast and listen to it on my long run every week, which is awesome. Oh. Um, I need to do more cardio. Uh, that's a statement I will not follow up on right now. <laughs> He's got a couple of speaker questions and, uh, we're going to kind of hit some highlights on this. Um, he's got a 5.1 setup. And Martin, uh, check your email because uh, I have a, a longer, more detailed uh, answer for you because there's a bunch of stuff that you're dealing with very specifically. But there's a lot of challenges that a lot of people run into. He's got a 5.1 setup, which is great. He's got five ball-mounted KEF-T301s and a KEF-T2 subwoofer as my home theater speakers. He wants to add height speakers and possibly change or add to the subwoofer. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> His height speaker questions, he says, I say height speakers because I live in a flat-roofed house with no attic. Actually, the ceiling in the main area is slightly sloped, about 15 degrees. As he's like, two versus four. And when I hear height speakers, I automatically assume you're talking about Atmos speakers. And, uh, you know, that 15-degree ceiling is not really going to work for Atmos-enabled speakers, which are the ones that bounce audio off the ceiling to the listener position. Although you could, you might be able to experiment by, you know, compensating for the 15-degree ceiling angle and, and either through doing math or trial and error, figure out how to bounce off that ceiling to your listening position. But generally speaking, Atmos-enabled speakers, there are some requirements that the roof has to be flat, it has to be reflective, it needs to not be covered with popcorn or some other type of textured ceiling or beams. You also have to be able to sort of position the speaker so that the speaker position will bounce the audio and it will actually get to the listening position. It's a, it's kind of fascinating, all the stuff they did to make Atmos-enabled speakers. They are basically more complicated than popping speakers in the ceiling directly above the listening position, which is super problematic if, uh, A, you don't want to run wires across the ceiling, which very few people do, or B, if you can't actually put speakers in the ceiling. That said, if you have an AVR that will drive four speakers, that is the platonic ideal of... Atmos uh, in a typical home theater, right? You know, if you're in a gigantic theater with a thousand people, there's going to be a lot more than four height speakers. But for the vast majority of us, two is the excellent start and four is the ideal. And they position the speakers differently when you do two versus four. If you have four speakers, you can basically have the seated position. The Atmos speakers, whether it's two or four, are ideally if you draw a perpendicular line through your left and right channel that goes right across the room to the left and right of the seated position. Ideally, you want the two channel speakers and the, the, the front you know, two channels and the back two channels to be on that line with your front speakers. And with two channels, it's like an 80 degree angle above the listening position. With four channels, it's like two at 45 degrees in front of you and two at 45 degrees in back of you. And if you're sitting at this, you know, staring at your screen or, or your eyes are glazed because Patrick's talking math and he's not very good at it, I apologize. But I also highly suggest you go to the Dolby's uh, speaker setup guides and find like your your 5.1.2 or your 7.1.2 or your 5.1.4 and then click through to the PDF because the PDFs have more information and a lot of kind of visual tools to help you picture where these speakers are supposed to be located. The challenge for Martin is that he can't really add height speakers above the listening position because of that ceiling. His idea was to install two front height speakers almost to the ceiling above their companion left and right speakers and see how that sounds. You could experiment with that. It might work. What you need to do is to be able to aim the speakers at the listening position. And at that point, six four there's there's a phrase from like the 40s involving like you know shooting craps that i i can never remember but it's it might work it might not work and uh it would be a matter of experimenting so your half which i assume is husband acceptance factor says uh cambridge audio's minx min 12 speakers would be okay and uh and he asks if those would be good enough for height speakers. So these Cambridge Audio Minx speakers are little tiny cube speakers. They cover 150 hertz to 20,000 hertz. They're $150 a pair. This all sounds fantastic. And I think these are kind of fascinating speakers because they're using balance mode radiators. And a 
balance mode radiator is mentally, I think of it as not exactly a, a traditional uh, dynamic speaker driver, i.e. a cone with a motor behind it. And it's not exactly like a planar driver in a, in a planar magnetic headphone, but it's, it's kind of a big round flat driver that gets moved back and forth with a motor. And they're very, very interesting because they offer like Cambridge audio claims they have 180 degree sound dispersion and no specific sweet spot. And I've seen uh, this company named Tectonic that use these. They say they combine bending wave mode technology with pistonic motion to create full audio range. And essentially, it's a it's it looks like a flat circle with a speaker surround and a motor moves it back and forth. I've seen uh, Tectonic in particular, their BMRs, their their balance mode radiators used by Philharmonic Audio. And Philharmonic Audio, it's a small company run out of the East Coast. They do kits. The man who runs it has done mods for inexpensive speakers. He sells like a $300 kit that uses a combination of stuff from uh, Parts Express and his crossover design. And you assemble it yourself. But he delivers these speakers that are phenomenally flat. So I got to say the Cambridge Audio Minx Min 12, if they're using similar drivers from Tectonic as to what Philharmonic is using in the BMR, they're probably a fantastic speaker. The challenge is, is how well it matches to the left, center, right channels, those T301s that are in your existing system. When you go to Dolby Atmos Home Theater Installation Guidelines, uh, December 2018, and, and you dig through it because you love reading technical documents, you get to page seven, um, there's a whole section on overhead speaker characteristics. And whatever you're using for an overhead speaker, um, you want them timber matched as closely as possible to the primary listener level speakers. And that's because as your Atmos sound object, right, your, your sound designer moves an object in this 3D space and the sound comes from all of the different speakers in your system to try to move that sound in space, right? Imagine a, uh, something moving across the front of the screen and up. And it's going to go from the left to the center and left to the center and right to the upper channels. You basically don't want the sound to change a lot between the left, center, right, and the upper channels because you'll be like, that's weird. Right. You also want them to have a wide dispersion pattern. So in terms of that wide dispersion pattern, those Minx speakers would be pretty ideal because 180 degree dispersion is about as wide as, as a speaker is ever going to disperse, uh, at least one that's not, you know, German and complicated and radiating 360 degrees. One other thing in that document that jumped out at me is that yeah. since he already has a 5.1 setup, adding two additional speakers, well, right off the bat, I wouldn't be trying to force an Atmos setup into a space that's just not ideal for it, either because of where you can put speakers or, in this case, the ceiling may not be ideal, and you're <laughs> Fine, definitely not doing <laughs> downward firing. So what right. they also offer and what your AVR should already support is something like 7.1, where you take those two additional right. channels and use them as rear surrounds in addition to your side surrounds that are already there. Granted, this may not work either because of where the wires are currently run. It might be easier to put right. these up front. But having all those speakers on the same relative plane surrounding you, I think is going to drive a very compelling experience. And with proper tuning, you could get some virtualization for that Atmos experience through a setup like that without technically having up-firing or ceiling down-firing speakers built right in. And again, like you said, that installation guide Dolby has covers many scenarios and they give some good options for what you can get away with. Good point. Yeah, I wouldn't be trying to force an Atmos speaker configuration into a space that's just not optimal for it. Right. When you could do superb 5.1 already or 7.1 with a couple of additional speakers. I think this is a valid point. I'm always just trying to make it work. I mean, you know, it's... I'm not saying don't experiment. Either, I'm just saying I would yeah. be just as happy having those additional rear surrounds yeah. in addition to the regular side surrounds. Yeah. It would be hysterical to temporarily, you know, duct tape a couple of those speakers in the ideal Atmos position to the ceiling and then put them up over the front speakers and see what the difference is. That would be a... Uh, this know. makes me want to explore the configuration within the AVR to see if, if the yeah. AVR is specifically configured for options for putting speakers up there, then it may do a superb job in terms of providing those effects. 
But if it's kind of assuming already that all the speakers are placed on the same relative height and plane around you, right. then you're kind of going outside of that if you start putting things yeah. up into the corners and trying to recreate yeah. height channels where they just yeah. aren't there. Well, And it's getting the best out of what you have right now. And it's already a good setup. I am going to just put out the suggestion of, hey, go from 5-1 to 7-1 and live it up. <laughs> You're so reasonable. That, that is well supported. That will work with yeah. all the content out there right now, including Dolby Atmos. And the AVR may actually provide a way of providing perhaps a very compelling virtual speaker experience in terms of having that true 3D from above or below. Right. Uh, this, is, this is probably also a good time for me to you know, tacitly admit that surround sound, whether it's Dolby or DTS, is really about math. And, you know, you can experiment with speaker placement for stereophonic imaging, right? Because, you you know, you, you want that, that holographic image of the singer somehow mysteriously being produced in space in between the left and right speaker. But when you're looking at, at Dolby or DTS, you know, there's left, center, right, there's the rear surrounds and these overhead channels, and they are all... There's a lot of math, and if the speakers aren't where the math thinks they are, things get weird. And you can make up for some speaker positioning with Odyssey or other tuning, but it only works so far. Um, shifting gears a second, because I, I, th I think there's some interesting things to talk about with Martin's questions about the subwoofer. So the T2s, while not nearly as small as those, those Minx speakers from Cambridge Audio, there's a reason they bundle the T2 with those. And, I, and the, the T2, as a partner to the T301s, is incredibly invaluable, right? Uh, any subwoofer is incredibly invaluable for the T301s. You know, those are incredibly room-friendly speakers. They're a small, flat enclosure uh, that makes it living room friendly. There's no way to port it. There's not a lot of volume to it. They basically have, you know, drivers in this slim plastic enclosure, and they start dropping off in the base around 200 hertz, and they're down like 10 decibels by 100 hertz. They do not have as much bass as the vast majority of, of quality or similarly priced bookshelf speakers. Hence, pair it with a good sub. Well, they paired it with a living room friendly sub in the T2. And when I look at the T2, because uh, it's a little spendy, it's like an $800 subwoofer. If I was looking at the T2 compared to any subwoofer from Shu or Monoprice or SVS or RSL, um, all of these companies have subwoofers that'll spank the T2 uh, on a CEA 22 measurement for $450 to $800 uh, or you know, bury it with extreme prejudice if you want to spend more than $800. Right. What the T2 does is it provides bass from 40 to 120-ish hertz, and that makes the 301 sound like they have bigger woofers. It essentially makes these incredibly small T301 speakers sound like they are decent bookshelf speakers, right? Because most bookshelf speakers are pretty solid from four, like 50 hertz on up. You know, when you look at the, the, the relatively small T2 subwoofer, you know, it drops 10 dB between 40 and 30 hertz. Does it have bass at, at 30 hertz? Yes. But it has a hell of a lot less bass at 30 hertz than it did at 40 hertz. So, so for the money, then, would you say do not add a second T2? Uh, if you really wanted to do it up better, start over with a single well, separate sub from like Shu or SVS or RSL or Monoprice. Yeah, if you can afford it, right, you know, when you, when you start investigating subwoofers, like one of the reasons I talk about these companies like SVS and Shu and, and Monoprice's Monolith series and uh, RSL Speedwoofer is because they all have pretty amazing performance for the money because they all spend a lot of money on their subwoofer designs. And a lot of speaker companies... They make subwoofers, but they make better speakers than they do subwoofers. You know, Martin mentions that that KC62. Now, Kef claims that the KC62 goes as low as 11 hertz, and it has a maximum output of 105 decibels. Um, but, you know, even with a 1,000-watt amplifier, this is a 10-inch cube with dual 6.5-inch drivers. The physics say that there's no way you're getting 11 hertz at 105 dB out of it. Right. I'd be shocked if it had 105 hertz. At th I'd be delighted. Uh, I don't know if I'd be shocked if it had 105 hertz, uh, excuse me, 105 dB at 30 hertz. It's also $1,500, which is a lot of money. You could buy three and a half RSL speed woofers 
for $1,500. You could buy a couple of really good subwoofers from Monoprice or Shoe uh, or SVS for $1,500. You could buy, you know, one outstanding subwoofer from Monoprice or, or SVS or RSL for a fraction of $1,500. So if you want to have you know, movie cinematic performance where you have that feeling in your chest as the explosions go off or the car crashes happen. You need a subwoofer that can get down to, you know, 20, 30 hertz. Uh, right. And that's not going to be, I, I, I cannot find any CEA 2010 numbers for the KC62 from anyone. Um, so Curious. I'm, I'm going to say, <laughs> well, it's a cool subwoofer. It's a fascinating design. It is very living room friendly, but take a look at what SVS has. Uh, you know, SVS makes some pretty good looking subwoofers. Take a look at if, if there's any of the subwoofers from any of these companies I mentioned that you can fit into that room without pissing off uh, your spouse. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, if there's not, then a second T2 is an option. But what that's going to do is it's going to add additional volume from 40 to 120 hertz. It's not going to dig deeper. It's going to add additional volume below that. But when you start stacking subwoofers, you know, things change because of the root mode and the positioning and because the, you know, the different subwoofer positions change the response in your room because of math. But, you know, if you stack them on top of each other, then everything would be about 6 dB higher if you added that second subwoofer, which is great because you're going to have a whole lot of Wump from 40 to 120 hertz, maybe too much, uh, but you're not going to have a lot in that car crash explosion action movie range below 40, 30 down to 20 hertz. So hope this helps a little bit. There's definitely some stuff to play around with. People have definitely recorded reported some not ceiling but high wall mounted success with something like SVS. They do their prime elevation speakers, which is kind of like if you took a bookshelf speaker. And you cut it diagonally, which I guess would make it a triangle, Mr. Norton. What they do is they have this speaker that, that looks, you know, you can set it down and it's like this, the speaker's facing up at 30 or 40 degrees if it was sitting on a table. Or you can rotate it and put it with the, the subwoofer above the tweeter and mount it like where the ceiling meets the wall. And that's what it was engineered for. And oh. there's a lot of people have had success with that. I don't think it's going to work in your particular room, Martin, but it's something for people to think about. And it, it, it means that essentially there are people who have had success with mounting height channels up close to high in the wall. You just have to kind of experiment with it to make it work. So hopefully, uh, Martin, this helps you out some. And uh, I also want to say thank you for giving me a chance to nerd out on things like subwoofer speaker location and uh, balanced mode radiators. I, I will say I have a couple of those Philharmonic speakers uh, in a kit that I'm going to build. They do not have the balanced mode radiators, but those balanced mode radiators are kind of fascinating when you start to dig into them. One of the descriptions uh, I read that essentially that the balanced mode radiator has, they basically have circles of mass in the back of that flat looking driver that cause it to break up in a fashion that is predictable. So that when it's, you know, going chaotic and, and not behaving pistonically, uh, it, it, uh, it functions like it's a series of, I, I think the, the thing I read on Audio Science Review described it as smaller radiating surfaces, which then have a wider dispersion. Um, I don't know. Wizardry. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> something that someday, maybe I could, I, I could email the nice person uh, behind Philharmonic Audio and get him to describe how those balanced mode radiators work. But his speakers uh, have been, like, Audioholics looked at them in Aaron's Audio Corner, and, and I want to say they are phenomenally flat, and they measure phenomenally well, and everybody I know who's heard them has basically bought a pair or wanted to buy a pair. They're kind of fascinating to uh, to learn about. So anyhow, Martin, hope this helps. More information coming to you in, a, in an email. And... Uh, Thank you for giving me a chance to nerd out on subwoofers and speakers and making your life more complicated. <laughs> Thanks to Rob for trying to bring it back to something more reasonable. 7 1 is fine. <laughs> and, and it's wired for it. It's good to go. Oh. Everything on the same plane. You could remove Surround the roof yourself. And. Put 12 inches of foam up there and make your house vastly more energy efficient and give you an opportunity to run those cables for the ceiling speakers. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> oh no, it could be done. It could be done. Think of the thermal gains. It'll just cost a fortune and be irritating.
Oh my goodness. <laughs> you had some you wanted to add a couple things about the uh the 42 48 inch uh, LG C2 OLED models. And uh yeah. I just wanted to clarify one thing about the 42 and the 48 inch models that we mentioned are effectively tuned to produce an identical picture even though they likely use different panel technologies in those particular two models for the C2 OLEDs. It had me one thinking that perhaps the delay for the North American launch may be to give LG time to make that transition so that we mm. don't have that scenario where there is actually two different panel technologies going into one, the 42 inch, and then one into the 48 inch. Uh, either way, in the end, in terms of what consumers are seeing right now, those two panels effectively look the same. It isn't until you hit the 55 inch and larger that you're going to have a significant picture difference within that C2 lineup in terms of having that brightness booster technology we were talking about. Uh, and to follow up on brightness booster, digging through LG Display's website, I came across uh, something in their newsroom that is an explainer for how brightness booster works. And it oh. mentions the deuterium that we talked about, that wonderful form of hydrogen that LG Display is using to increase the punch of the picture and its longevity. They also say that our brightness booster is also personalized algorithms. And I was like, what? <laughs> and if let me can I can I read this sentence? Some of it is awfully strange, man, and maybe it's just a translation thing, but yes, please go right ahead. It's a page of odd. <laughs> LG's <laughs> sorry, I'm I, I It's hard I, to I, read. You sent me this link and I was like, what? And then I was like, because you described it and I'm like, uh-huh. And then I saw it and I was like, what? LG Display's newly unveiled EX technology is the core feature of the OLED.EX display. There are two key elements to keep in mind. Deuterium and personalized algorithms. <laughs> that was like, what? And um, looking specifically at personalized algorithms, they give a rundown of what do we mean by this term? And it's identifying the initial state of pixels during the product's assembly, knowing that initial okay. state and what the actual performance is of an individual red, blue, green, or white pixel, sub-pixel. This sounds like, yeah, this sounds like sub-pixel calibration. That sounds cool so far. Insane math, but cool. Or at least monitoring of that particular pixel and knowing how it behaves over time. But part two was analyzing the individual viewing patterns and watching habits. And then that enables them to then predict the operating conditions of, quote, optimal pixels to maintain the brightness and performance of that TV compared to its initial state. Now, the odd part was really this quote also describing it. LG Display identified a vast amount of users without data loss using big database initial prediction techniques and reader accumulation algorithms. So effectively, this TV, in a sense, does look at the type of content you are viewing and makes decisions about how it's going to actually drive the pixels on the screen right. based upon not only what they know about it as it left the factory, but how you use your TV over time. I'm assuming this is all just contacting the mothership back in Korea to do all of this work. Hopefully... Hopefully not. But anyway, yeah, the personalized algorithms are just as critical to this technology as is the deuterium enhancement for the individual OLED materials. So because it seems like they're, they're going to compensate <laughs> based on your, quote, accumulative viewing patterns and watching habits <laughs> across the 33 million pixels that they will. I mean, they say it. They predict the operating conditions of the optimal pixels that can maintain the brightness and performance of the initial state. So are they tracking the degradation of the pixel performance over time and compensating for that? Could be. It is a vaguely worded <laughs> statement. And they're, in effect, saying that, hey, look, if you're watching content with a lot of red in it, we can keep track of that. And compensate in other ways uh how they're compensating is really the question maybe they right. balance between say using the white subpixel more or less depending on the other three subpixels uh and just in terms of for any particular usage case i am curious to know how they can actually compensate for specific colors over time 
in terms right. of maintaining that brightness. I could see that if you were going to combine red, blue, and green to make white, and you have a white subpixel, there would be ways of balancing between those two uh, in terms of using RGB to make white or just driving it with the white subpixel to help maintain even wear across the panel. In terms of other colors, especially primaries, it's like, how much can you really do short of just pixel shifting? The system apparently is aware of the content type being displayed and can make changes right. over time. But it's not like, you know, if you're displaying something with a lot of reds and greens in it, that you're suddenly just going to simply reduce the amount of reds or greens or somehow generate right. them in another way. And well, yeah. or maybe you, I mean, it's, it's right. It's crazy. It's, Cause this is, this is I one of those things where it's, it's, it's technology, but there's a lot of marketing speak and they're incredibly vague about it. And I feel like this is one of those things where we're either going to learn a lot about it over the next year, or they're just going to be completely closed jaw about it. Because I also wonder, for example, let's say you watch a lot of soccer or a lot of football. So the screen of your television or baseball and the, so the screen of your television is constantly awash in green. And if you're constantly using your green pixels, more of your screen is using more of the green pixels, then in theory, you would have more accumulated, I hate to say wear, but essentially pixels wear out over time. If you if you want to waste a monitor, leave it on 24-7, uh, you know, blasting television. Dell told me with desktop monitors, you know, if you leave them on 24-7, blasting away through the color spectrum in three years will have effectively worn out that monitor worn out being the state where the the pixels are have lost 50 percent of their brightness from their original starting point but this to me seems like if you're using it gets weird right because i, I you know there's there's not an individual backlight for every green red and blue pixel so they must know about you know, if ah, the green, blue, or red pixel, yeah, that's where it gets OLED <laughs> makes it more complicated. Oh my goodness! I um, just took a, a, a step back when I read the line that LG Display identified a vast amount of users without data loss, and I'm like, wait, identified? Are they actually able to identify individual TVs in the marketplace by simply what they display? You can be fingerprinted that way, and then. Using their big database initial prediction techniques, <laughs> taking that accumulated This is a lot data. of YouTube solar channel videos and a whole lot of motorcycle racing. This must be Robert Aaron. <laughs> I don't anyway, think you're doing that. <laughs> I mean, but clearly it's more than just right. a material change. It's also this algorithm that is doing its best to maintain the quote unquote initial state to make that TV look better over the long term. And just subjectively based on the reviews I've seen already of the EX panels mm -hmm. in action, they do seem less prone to image retention, especially when displaying very bright, small portions on the screen and then switching to another nice. scene. So, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, you know, LG's a big company. LG Display is a big company. And their choice of words left me scratching my head, at least. On this page that I will link to from the uh, news department at lgdisplay.com. <laughs> Maybe it's one it's, of those things where there's a, a very simple explanation, but it's complicated and they didn't want to have complicated things out there where our, our, our slow little minds would be hurt by them. Um, no, no. This we'll was, see what happens. Yeah, this was just strange. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, if you enjoy Robert and I talking about strange and wondrous things in the context usually of home theater and video and audio, but occasionally involving motorcycles, desert racing, or long random drives through the universe, or food. Um, oh, do us yes. a favor, become a patron. Patreon.com slash ABXL is where you can support us. Essentially, Patreon is a place where they collect a monthly fee. The monthly fee goes to us, and we use that to help bring the program and additional treats for our patrons uh, back to you. So uh, patreon.com slash AVXL. Thank you. Seriously, thank you to everyone who contributes. We really appreciate it. And uh, keep an eye on patreon.com slash AVXL or for emails from AVXL to find out what's going on and bonuses you receive for being our patrons. Early access to the podcast, baby. That's probably the primary you, uh, you made me laugh. You found a YouTube channel that talks about things that you hate in a way that you love. I did. <laughs> totally. Uh, as far as Lord of the Rings movies go, I find them right. all but truly unwatchable. Uh, however, I found a YouTube channel called In Deep Geek 
they do explainers about the characters and the lore in a way that I find just mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, I was like, wow, I think I figured out more about the Lord of the Rings storyline just watching a few deep dives into some of the characters than I did watching the entire series of those movies, which I will never do again. Anyway, in deep <laughs> geek at the YouTube is a wonderful uh, thing to check out. If you're into Lord of the Rings or other content like that, they cover a few different programs and do some pretty deep dives into putting together, not only with a background of just beautiful artwork that they incorporate within to this presentation, but just bringing some of those characters' backstories into more clarity, at least for people like me who don't pay very critical attention to Lord of the Rings. So anyway, yeah, In Deep Geek was awesome and is awesome and worth uh, worth your time if you're into it or even if you're not, if you despise it but still want to have a little background on what it is people are talking about around you. Uh, there you go. <laughs> hey, and I, I finally tried out Cyberpunk 2077. This I purchased, I got to say, oh, nice. when it first came out, I purchased it on Stadia, the Google game streaming service, but I never played it on that. And on the PC <laughs> side of things, it was a complete mess on initial release. However, a short while ago, version 1.5 came out, and this is a major upgrade for the game. And I picked it up on sale uh, via Steam for my PC and it delivers a pretty significant workout for your GPU and your CPU. The visual and the environment are superb, especially when you crank up all the details. It is one of those, in a sense, a sandbox style game where you can explore the world and ignore the main story if you so desire. Mm. I will say what jumped out to me was the just amazing lighting effects. They really yeah. do good looking HDR looking content without even having HDR enabled on your monitor, if it so supports it. And I won't get into it right now, but HDR support in Windows 10 and 11 is just a hot mess, and I tend to avoid it whenever possible. It's almost never worth it. Uh, I will try this, though, on my OLED to see if maybe it's better, but the way Windows handles HDR is just kind of a it's the worst way they could possibly do it it's like let's just call it criminal and move on yeah it's (laughs) terrible anyway uh for cyberpunk 2077 it's also the first time i've messed with nvidia's dlss oh wow that technology is typically used to take a lower resolution sample and upscale it into something that looks really nice and effectively higher resolution but maintaining just epic performance i've tweaked it so it's doing as best as far as image quality can go and I'm willing to let the performance sacrifice a little bit but it really came in handy because I have this game set up for max frame rate max graphic settings and by enabling DLSS within this game on my Nvidia hardware it seemed to clean up some of those effects and enhancements and graphical features within the game beyond just leaving the game set to maximum as far as the visual fidelity goes Mm. 2077 has a built-in benchmark that is useful for doing quick comparisons of how these settings affect things like particle effects and the motion of the scene and the details in the scene. I'm having a lot of fun with it, just exploring this incredible city-like environment. And I've barely even gotten out of the first part of the game, but I'm enjoying it. I will say the audio (laughs) is generally pretty good, but I really would like some more details about the related presets that are available on the PC side. There is one labeled headphone, which seems kind of obvious. Then there's another one that is labeled home theater that used to be labeled studio reference. And I've been going back and forth between the headphone preset and the home theater preset, finding that the headphone preset simply sounds louder, but I'm not sure if it's using maybe a little more compression or is the home theater one definitely the way to go if you want the best quote unquote reference sound from the game. Uh, There are also spatial audio options, too, and I'd like to try out Dolby Headphone, but I despise having to pick up Dolby's headphone option from the integrated Microsoft Store within Windows, since I don't use that part of Windows. So, anyway, I definitely, as far as audio goes, prefer what games like Call of Duty Warzone has done, where they not only provide a variety of audio presets, they provide very detailed descriptions in addition to a short preview of how it's going to sound depending on which preset you have selected. And I really would hope that something like 2077 would make that uh, an option where 
it was just a little easier to figure out what are the differences between all these presets. Some of them are obvious. It's like, oh, base enhancement or whatever. But if you're going for like the best home theater slash surround sound through your headphones. Uh, it's yeah. nice to describe what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And I'm uh, either way, uh, visually, I'm enjoying the game and the, the characters and the quirks and the weirdness of literally a living digital city you can kind of cruise around in is just fascinating. And if you've never played it or you picked it up a long time ago and were annoyed by all the bugs and weirdness and quirks of the initial release or even the 1.3 patch, 1.5 seems to have cleared up quite a bit and have made it a pretty solid experience. I don't think I've run into any straight-up bugs yet, or at least game crashes, so to speak. But as anyone who plays that game will tell you, it's good to just tap F5 every now and then to do the quick save, especially <laughs> before anything important or immediately after anything important to uh, keep your saves. Save yourself. <laughs> exactly. Our, so my family and I are currently obsessed. Uh, we have like one night a week where we do... Uh, what we affectionately call episodic television night uh, as to be uh, separated from movie night. Uh, we don't actually call it episodic television night, except when we're trying to freak out people, but there you go. Gravity falls. We've been watching. I hope I not known this existed. It was like a Disney cartoon called gravity falls. It's been around since 2012. I've never heard of it before. It is, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I describe it as delightfully weird, small town, Oregon hijinks involving Dipper, Mabel and Grunkle Stan. And uh, 12-year-old twins, Dipper and Mabel Pines, are dropped off from their home in Piedmont, California. That's a funny reference if you've ever lived in Oakland. To the fictitious town of Gravity Falls, Roadkill County, Oregon, to spend the summer with their great uncle Stan Pines. Hence, Grunkle Stan, who runs a tourist trap called the Mystery Shack, which is basically uh, based on a, a much-beloved roadside attraction uh, in Northern California, up near the big trees. And, uh, it's, it's like a, it's a funnier kid friendly twin peaks. That's how I kind of was mentally describing yeah. it or, or uh, cool. X files with 12 year olds. Um, animation is gorgeous. Uh, I also might be soft on Pacific Northwest scenery. Um, I haven't seen uh, season two yet, so, uh, no spoilers. Uh, but I, it was, I was digging into it. So the creative director of season one was Mike Rianda, who you might remember as a director of the Mitchells versus the machines, which I absolutely adored last year. Alex Hirsch is the kind of creative force behind gravity falls. He did two seasons and wrapped it up. It also made me want to check out over the garden wall. Uh, it's a cartoon network miniseries created by Patrick McHale, who told the gravity falls creator, Alec Hirsch, that you basically need to finish the story. Uh, cause they ended the season one and, and Hirsch, I think was just physically and emotionally exhausted. And Patrick McHale was like, and I guess a couple other people were like, you have to finish this. And he went to Disney and was like, yeah, we can do it in 10 episodes. And Disney was like, yeah, we do, we do 20 episode seasons. Uh, so he, he, he went for it. And, uh, created this second season incredibly uh incredibly beloved by a lot of people been around for a long time um i guess hirsch is also currently a part of the team that's doing inside job including writing and voice acting and the owl house and um so i just it was funny because i started like realizing there was this group of people who had worked together in animation that had created all of this stuff i love and i was and then led to a bunch of stuff that i might love um like Over the Garden Wall and the Owl House and other things. Uh, and on a semi-related note, because of one of the voice actors, uh, I love J.K. Simmons, the actor. You probably know him as... Uh... <laughs> I'm laughing because I should know the name of the Daily Bugle. Um... I know him from a certain insurance J. Jonah Jameson. Ad. Oh yeah, well he 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 played like J Jonah Jameson on in the uh, in the Spider Man movies. Um, he also recently played William Frawley uh, in the Amazon movie Being the Ricardos about Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. Um, he's just a phenomenal actor, and I realized like he often plays incredibly unlikable characters, and uh, he's just a phenomenal phenomenal actor. Also, uh, as a sober person, I'm just gonna say I love Ryan Reynolds' Aviation Gin ads. Uh, I'm sober. They're still funny as hell. Uh, most recently, the rejected airline safety video on YouTube. Uh, there's also some rude red card humor. Like, you know, probably don't want to watch it with your young children. Uh, uh, he does a, what essentially is a video about cybersecurity and skincare, which is basically an ad for 1Password uh, involving his Welsh soccer team. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, and the Adam Project Daylight Saving Spiel. Uh, that uh, 
that was posted on his YouTube channel. Um, I may be a Ryan Reynolds fanboy. I'm not quite sure. The Adam Project is fascinating. Uh, yeah. He seems like a good <laughs> dude. Yeah, you know, he better not be evil and, and hiding babies in his basement. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. And apparently he stole the Deadpool suit from the first movie. That was the one thing he took. He just wa- walked home Why wearing it one not? day. <laughs> and he has he to whip like it out every years. now and then. You know, that would be the most terrifying thing ever is to, you know, go trick-or-treating and have Deadpool open the door. <laughs> yes. Terrible. If you're not a Deadpool fan. That would be terrible. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Terribly awesome. Yes. If you got a question for us, such as why do you guys like Deadpool so much, just tweet at Robert Heron, at Patrick Norton, or at AVXL, or better yet, email us, ask at AVXL.com. If you need a hashtag, hashtag AskAVXL works just fine. And as always, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone listening, and especially intense thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons at patreon.com slash AVXL. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL. Woohoo!